couple guests today, uh, so we'll get to it. Adnan and I talk movies, talk Oscars, a little bit on the Eagles. Also, Raheem Palmer, part of the East Coast Buys podcast with House and JJ. Uh, he's going to talk about his models for gambling, some NBA futures, what he likes when it comes to MVP odds, and then a little bonus nugget that he throws our way that I did not expect, which is really good. Uh, and then we'll do a bigger life advice with Kyle. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. Big week for this guy. We learned that Canada invented football and basketball. (laughs) So uh, we really feel like we were late even having Adnan Verk, who joins us now. What's up? Ryan, great to see you, man. I've got so much to get to before whatever it is you have to ask me. So let's get to it. Love the Deliverance rewatchables. I was hoping you were going to be wearing the Burt Reynolds shark vest, which is just an unbelievable look. And I can see you pulling it off. Secondly, love that you mentioned Ned Beatty's teeth in the film, which I don't think has ever gotten nearly enough pub. As you said, he thought he was going to be one of the hillbillies. Instead, he was one of the people who was, of course, brutally sodomized. And I'm glad when Bill mentioned potentially Mount Rushmore, he goes, oh, network, which is, I, I hope people listening, oh, yeah, of course, network, you will atone one of the great movies ever. And Ned Beatty's incredible in that movie. I can't imagine a lot of people do prep prior to an appearance in your podcast, but I did that last night. I made sure I listened to the Terry Winter interview, which was three months ago in early November. I remember you text me, you had him on, but I made sure I listened last night. Can you believe, and for those who are unaware, Terrence Winter wrote The Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, did Tulsa King which I labored through all nine episodes. Credit to Ryan on the podcast saying he watched the pilot. Didn't go further than that. You were honest about it. I don't think we're going to have Terry Winter back to discuss what the rest of the season was like, but not nearly as strong as The Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire. Having said that, he was a sensational guest. How about the fact he turned down David Chase for a job in The Sopranos because he felt it was a demotion? At that point, he was a consulting producer. He's like, sorry, I can't be a staff writer. Unbelievable cojones on this guy. David Chase is like, all right. 15 minutes later, called him back. You got the job. I couldn't believe that Terry Winter pulled that off. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was that was three months ago. Um, I, pr- <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> In case you want to go back in the archives, check it out. <laughs> yeah, I look, his his whole story was awesome. I mean, the fact that he basically kind of was was figuring out a way, like watches watches some of the it was like, I have to be on the show. I have to be on this show. And he wrote some of the best episodes. So, uh, and Boardwalk Empire was incredible. That one, it's weird how, you know, in the beginning, it didn't matter what HBO did. I just gave it a chance because we weren't used to prestige television. Like at yeah. first you were like, wait, 
stuff is actually this good on TV. Like we weren't used to, it. we didn't grow up with that. Like Twin Peaks was the first television thing, at least in my childhood, where you went, what are they trying to do on TV? Like this is cool. Like we're not allowed to have stuff like this. And then when I think about the competition for eyeballs with the amount of great stuff that's out there, the amount of great stuff that gets lost, uh, like Boardwalk, I think of certain shows and I go, you know, if Boardwalk Empire had come before the other shows, I actually think it'd be remembered as one of the great ones. Yeah. And it's just kind of draft behind this push of, of those early years where it felt like we were just like, it felt like everything that was getting greenlit was awesome. Yeah, I remember the, the, the tagline was one of the best ever. It's not TV, it's HBO, right? We're better than TV. We're, we're which is now known as prestige television. Obviously, Bill and you guys at, 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 with, um, with your company have you know literally a podcast around prestige television because it's like better than actual television. But HBO was the ones doing that. It's not TV, it's HBO. And, and I'm with you on Boardwalk. Buscemi, it was very risky to have him as a lead. He was such a great supporting actor, whether it was Fargo or any of those Coen Brothers movies. To have him as a lead was a risk, but he was terrific. And I, of course, I love Bobby Cannavale. Won an Emmy for that show, and yeah, it was a really—it's an exceptional time. And it, it just again, I can't think Terry Winter. The guy went to be a lawyer, and he was the worst lawyer ever. And he said he wanted to be a sitcom writer. And I love that you follow up. You're like, wait, were, like, were you funny? Like, it's one thing to be like, oh, I'm kind of a funny guy. And I, I love that he referenced Mr. Saturday Night, which I watched on Broadway last year. You know, I love Billy Crystal. So Mr. Saturday Night, great film from 1992, and he referenced it in your interview. He said, you know, you're gonna have living room balls, and then like, you know, the cojones to actually go out there and do the actual jokes. So sitcom writer working on flipper eventually he's doing the sopranos i mean that is honestly hysterical the stuff that you got out of him all right speaking of the arts uh we're coming up on on the oscars and uh i've i've made it through maybe half of the the best picture nominees would we say this is a weaker draft class oh i i think it's fair to say this is the worst year in movies we've ever seen Think about that. I have a podcast called Cinephile, Lover of Film, in which I'm promoting cinema, and it's the worst year in cinema that I can ever remember. I mean, you go back every year, Ryan, there's at least one or two you go, hey, you know what? Wasn't a great year, but man, Parasite was great. Wasn't a great year, but God, I will always remember The Irishman. You know, I know people don't like Shape of Water, but I loved it. I love Three Billboards. That's in Ebbing, Missouri. Those films from 2017. Of course, Irishman from a few years ago. This year, and as we were texting the other day, I said Banshees was my best film of the year. And you go, wow, best film, like, Exactly. It was a lean year. Like that's probably a number seven or number eight film in a strong year. But by by dearth of a good quality around me, I had to go Banshees at one, which Stan Van Gundy very memorably yesterday in the Levitard show said how he thinks Banshees and his shared is one of the worst movies he's ever seen in his life. He thought it totally sucked. He said the critics love it. So everyone's afraid to say it's not good. But I will disagree with Stan Van uh, when it comes to that. But I'm glad you made it through half of them. It's weird because this year, and you and I can appreciate blockbusters. We both love Mad Max Fury Road. You recommended that book to me, which I read last year. It was tremendous. But we also can like independent films, smaller films. This year, you've got your populist films, Top Gun Maverick, which has made billion dollars, Avatar 2, which is now the third highest grossing movie ever. Now he's surpassed James Cameron. He has surpassed Titanic. That's at $2.2 billion. And then Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I had as number four on my best pictures of the year, and is right around the front runner to win, that made $100 million. Like that, that feels like one of those indie movies nobody watches. No, it's $100 million. It was a real word of mouth hit. So this year's movies are definitely movies people have seen, but your port making your way halfway through it, there's not enough that you're rushing up to tell people to go watch them. Okay, so let's start with Banshees. Uh, I've now said this repeatedly. This has been a newer thing for me. Like I'm completely in a tank for Colin Farrell. Like every time he does something now, I'm in. His career arc is incredible. 
because in the beginning it's like who's this hot foreign guy and we're going to put him <laughs> in a million movies and that's just sort of the t- that was kind of the timeline for what would happen to that guy and then usually yeah. he's done and then when i saw the lobster which remains one of my favorite movies ever he was so funny without trying to be funny the script is so dark and weird i love that it was this i just i just love the inception of these ideas where it's like okay what do you have i'm like well it's sort of like a where does it take place? Well, it's like in an alternate reality. Okay, wait, what? No, it's actually like you wouldn't know anything was different other than this absurd idea that when you're heartbroken, you go to find love. And if you don't, you become an animal, right? So now it's like a completely make-believe world. (laughs) And and Colin Farrell (laughs) chooses a lobster. And she's like, that's a very good choice. And you're just sitting there and it's all deadpan. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, Colin Farrell's incredible. Like, yeah. this is an incredible actor. And so since then, I mean, In Bruges was was an indie, cool thing that you kind of got it. And you're like, oh, did you see that? And you'd recommend it to all your friends. And so to see his um, his move in the Northwater, that television show where it's, it's what, late 1800s whaling, maybe it's earlier than that, I forget. Uh, he's unbelievable as, as the villain in that. And so to see him in Banshees, he's kind of a dope. And the dialogue is so direct where Colm, which I couldn't quite figure out how to pronounce his name for like the first 30 minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. The the part where he's like, I just don't like you. (laughs) 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 I look at the scenery is incredible. The story certainly gets weird. It's kind of depressing, but I don't think it's necessarily like, you don't, you don't get done with it. Like it's a downer, you know, the movie isn't over and it's a downer. And as much as I love it, I can't believe you have it as the favorite for best picture, which again speaks yeah. to the class. Yeah, I need 30 seconds on the lobster because you did reference it with Josh Demel. And I was hoping Demel was going to piggyback you because you referenced it how much you love Farrell. You're almost kind of saying to Josh, like, hey, you could be like him, like young, good looking guy, and then transition. And Demel's toward- really funny. Right. So go ahead. But, but but lobster, I mean, that first 10 minutes, like, I mean, you and I have said this before, first 10 minutes has to grab you. The first 10 minutes where Farrell is asked to nail his sexual orientation, he says bisexual, he said, we don't have that option anymore. And he gives it like a solid 20 seconds over mulling over. What should he go with? Heterosexual or homosexual is incredible. How about John C. Riley later on? He gets his hand put in a toaster because he gets caught masturbating. Like this is just a disturbing, dark movie. And either you're going to find it really funny or you just think it's demented. Back to Banshees. Yeah, what I found was so funny about it was, as you said, it's direct and it's just so honest. Like, I, I wish more people talk like that. Like you said, Brendan Gleeson just finds him insufferable. Like, we've been friends for a while. Like, I'm tired of your stuff. Like, I'm just tired of your nonsense. I don't want to hear it anymore. And Colin Farrell, the fact, he just keeps going at him like a piranha. Like, well, what is it? Like, why can't we just hang out? Like, what well, you know, I can change it. No, like, just, just fucking leave me alone. Like, I just, I love the way that Brendan Gleeson has just had enough. And I'm sure we've all had friends like that. Like, hey, I don't, I don't want to catch it on my life entirely, but I could use a break. Like, we're going to need to go a few months here where I'm just, I'm tired of your nonsense. And I think the film I've appreciated more, like you said, stunning cinematography and it's beautifully shot and, and great performances by my quartet of actors. Barry Coggin as well is not only for supporting actor, the actress, I don't remember her name, but she's up for supporting actress. She's really good. Also the feckin' donkey. I mean, you walk into that film, you can't feckin' every feckin' time. You're your feckin' donkey. You're in your donkey shite. Like you can't stop doing a bad Irish accent for an hour after the movie. And even greater the point, because someone said to me, go, like, I got it. It's dark and it's funny, but like, what's the point? And I said, I think. And I don't know for, for sure, but I think Mark McDonough, I'll take your opinion on this, is almost making an analogy for like Irish Civil War. He's saying nobody knows what they're fighting for. Like after a while, it's like, why, why am I cutting off my own fingers? Why am I throwing bloody fingers at a guy? It's kind of putting the nonsensical nature of conflict. I'm not sure if that's what Mark McDonough is going for, but someone did throw that idea out at me. 
Yeah, sometimes I, you know, I don't love like trying to always get in the director writer's head on what they were doing and trying to make it out to be something way more complicated than it was because it sounds cool as a critic or somebody that's doing these. Like, I just, it always reminds me of like taglines for movies and it'd be like, you know, a triumph of the human spirit, Beethoven 2. And you're like, what? It's like a triumph? <laughs> a tr- a, like, my life's going to be different after this? Like, what? what? What are you saying? And so with this, I just felt like it was really basic. Like, what yeah. would two people do in this setting with no other options, by the way, too? Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing else to do in this, this part of the country. And it's like one guy just doesn't like the other guy. And that's, also, that's all it is. I, you know, right. it's, it's, it's so simple. And yeah, maybe there's, there's deeper meaning to it. That, that, that analogy or that correlation may be exactly right with the backdrop of the war going across the sound where, you know, they're like, Hey, the guys are fighting again and they can see this, this rebellion going on, which they're completely detached from because of right. water. Um, so maybe that's totally accurate, but I, I kind of like looking at stuff as its simplest form, like the elevator pitch, that one line that they'll always tell you to do. If you're writing something, explain it to me in a sentence. And in this one, it would be one guy just decides he doesn't like the other guy. <laughs> if you just imagine the studio executive then leaning in going, okay, but then what happens? Like, is there a car crash? Is there like a meteor comes? Or you have, no, no, that's just, he just doesn't like him. And he's just tired of him. Why is he tired of him? Not really he's tired. annoying. He's annoying. You know, it'll be annoying. Like, yeah, doesn't that happen a lot? Yeah, but I'm going to do it better than anybody else. Okay. Uh, also, important how you can incorporate animals, right? We've talked this before with John Wick. They're like, how can you justify Keanu Reeves being a killing machine? Well, they killed his dog. Well, then you can kill 10,000 people. Same thing. A donkey's involved? Jenny the donkey? Okay, now all bets are off. Right. We had John Wick's producer on. Yeah. And he, he was like, once we tested it, and the dog part of it, everybody's like, okay, no problem. <laughs> And kill as many people as you need to. Kill this fucking dog. Uh, Causeway, is that nominated? It is. Causeway is the only nomination. Brian Tyree Henry, who is terrific. And he, of course, he's been a really, you know, lauded actor for his work on Atlanta. And here he is playing this, you know, dark, self-loathing character. Him and Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, I, I loved your point because Owen Gladwell, who's a terrific film critic for Variety, he said, you know, this film totally fits indie movie heaven. So you take a big movie star like Jennifer Lawrence, you glam her down. She's got some sort of malady, in this case, PTSD. She's coming back from the war, early scenes of her rehabilitation, quiet, evocative score, uh, fairly static shots, a little bit of grittiness to it, set in New Orleans, a little grimy, 90, 95 minutes, and not much of a resolution. Like th- that, That's your independent film right there. And, and then she texted me the other day, it's just characters living with each other. Right? Just Let's just step in their shoes for a while. I'm like, okay, like I-, I like the film primarily for the performances. But that to me is like really cribbing from the indie film playbook. Okay, both of them are terrific. It was a nice reminder of how amazing Jennifer Lawrence is, where she's this massive superstar and yet she can be in this indie film and you're not distracted by it. You know, I think some stars are almost too much for a movie like this. I like the New Orleans setting. You know, I love that city, its uniqueness. I think they did a really great job with that. Uh, I would have liked to see instead of New Orleans auto repair, something a little more specific. You know, and just sort of like Nola auto repair. Uh, her backstory is terrific. There's some awesome scenes with her mother where you can tell they're just not on the same page. They never have been. Uh, there's one line in that movie that I love the way that, that it's delivered. And it's a really well-written line where it's something your mother would say to you, uh, depending on the relationship you have with your mother. 
where she's just like, oh, you look like you. You look like you when she's back home after right. dealing with this PTSD from the war. And the thing I don't like about it, and I've noticed this, and this is going to transition perfectly into the whale, is the way trailers fuck with us. The way trailers try to sell us an idea that isn't really part of the movie at all. And the glimpse of this idea that there's a romantic relationship between the two main characters, which is not even remotely part of this movie at all, except for one kiss in a scene that ultimately leads to nothing other than, you know, kind of their conflict and they have their blow up, which, you know, will probably be resolved. Mm -hmm. But you go into it kind of being like, ooh, is this going to be this this edgy relationship? Like, wow, what's going on here? Because the whole buildup is that she's not interested in men and he has this horrible thing that happened to him in the past, which I think is really good story building and all that kind of stuff. But then when you watch the movie, you're like, that literally had that glimpse, depending on how you first preview the movie. And I don't really like watching trailers that much. But with this one, I went, you kind of sold us something that definitely wasn't part of this because it was yeah. this moment of like, wow, you know, here's, here's a very, is this, a, a progr- you know what I mean? Like what, what kind of relationship is going to develop out of these two and nothing other than just being friends. That's yeah, it. And I, right. And I guess the obvious thing is, well, if they fall in love, that's what you're going to see. That's predictable. So I'm with you. I'm like, no, I'm glad they didn't. But what yeah. is the answer to it? Well, they're just friends. I'm like, okay, that's it. Like, like the blow up scene was great. Like, I wish they actually had a little more of that. Like when they went at each other, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a volcanic scene. They both really get to show off their acting chops. Had a bitch of you know anger that was submerged. And then it's kind of like, well, can I just stay at your crib for a while? I'm like, okay. So I'm I, I'm with you. Like I I, I appreciate endings the fact are hard. Go, yeah, I, I appreciate and- the fact they didn't go obvious and find them together. But the answer is, I don't know if this ending was all that memorable either. No, I'm not saying I even wanted them together. I just felt like it was it was kind of capturing something. And really, I think what I'm saying is I really should save it more for the whale because I like Causeway. Uh, endings are really hard. It's a classic yeah. indie resolution to a movie, picking up on a dialogue yes. from previously, closing with that line. You're like, okay. But I did like living in that world because their performances are to it. You feel total sympathy for them. They feel completely relatable. They don't overdo it at all. It's it's good reveal. you know. So I thought both of them were were really strong. The whale. Okay, let's do this. I went into this expecting like the greatest vacation of my life. All right. I went into this expecting the date that just, oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to call my friends if I were to do that kind of a thing, which I wouldn't, uh, this is going to be the greatest game I've ever been to. I was so in on this between Aronofsky, knowing the background that it was a play, knowing that Brandon Frazier was kind of having this comeback and the way they sold this movie in the trailer. And then when I left, I was physically angry (laughs) in the theater. (laughs) It's not a bad movie. I just wanted it to be great. I wanted to feel something I hadn't felt in the theater in a long time. It's the first movie that I've gone to in the theater since I think 1917, not the year of the movie. That'd be a long time. Sam Andes. Frazier's terrific. I like that they force us to stay in a shitty apartment the entire time to make you feel a bit claustrophobic. But between a couple things that I'm like, what was that for? And then the ending and why I think it's so different than the trailer, I was disappointed. To your point, it's one of those films that when you first hear about it, as you said, Aronofsky, Frazier, comeback role. Aronofsky did this previously with Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler. We know he's a great director, not just because The Wrestler, but Reckon for a Dream. He takes chances. Even when they don't work, Mother, which I found loathsome, at least he's a director who's and that's, willing to that's push the, the point. Envelope. The Wrestler yeah. is so good. Requiem for a yeah. Dream is so different. I mean, The Wrestler is, you feel everything in that movie, okay? Right. And 
I unfortunately wanted that same thing. So I was holding it to almost an impossible standard, knowing that, as you pointed out, I think you were depressed from week after mother. Like, I remember you telling me, I saw you in person after and you were just like, my God, you were shook. You were, you weren't even the Adnan full of energy that we're so accustomed to because you're holding Aronofsky to this impossible standard. And that's what I was doing in this movie, unfortunately, although I think the trailer was just, I know trailers are misleading. I know they're supposed to hook us in. Don't fucking do it with Aronofsky. Like, don't do it with this picture because then when you're in it, you're like, okay, like, this is, this is what it is. Go ahead. I liked your point. You said this to Simmons and CR on that rewatchables pod. You go, I don't watch a trailer if I already know I want to watch the movie. And I'm with you on that. Like, Killers of the Fire Moon, Scorsese, DiCaprio, De Niro. Like, I don't need to see the trailer. Like, I got it. I, I don't want to know anything about it. So I'm with you. If you already know you want to see it, don't watch the trailer. If the trailer is supposed to lure you in, then you give it a chance. But to your point, The Whale it looks like a no-brainer, right? With that cast and those, you know, that pedigree of the director. And instead, what happens? It's only really got nominations in pub for Frasier. Hong Chow, who I thought was terrific for supporting the actress, and for the makeup. And you would have thought that kind of film, that's going to be up for best picture. That's getting the best director, best screenplay for Samuel Hunter, adapting the screenplay. So what happened? If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, and again, that's just an aggregate. It's one measurement. That's 66% right now from critics. 60 and above is a positive review. Below that is negative. So your reaction is actually more commonplace with what most critics found. Now, I love the film. And again, maybe I'm in the bag for Aronofsky. I really want, I was rooting for the film to be great. So I'm already on that side of the ledger. Um, but what I loved about it was I'm with you. I love the fact it's claustrophobic. I love Frazier's performance. Um, I like the fact that, you know, you really, it's an exercise in empathy and in compassion. And you're like, this guy's life is so miserable. And yet he's still is somehow a vessel for positivity and optimism. And there's a little bit of callbacks to the wrestler in that you've got this teenage daughter. In that instance, it was Evan Rachel Wood. This time you've got the daughter coming in, just just unleashing on him, right? All the rage and anger for the fact that he left her mom for his lover, and you know all these things that have happened. She's since great, then. yeah, and she's just letting him have it. And yeah. and like, I thought those scenes were great. And to me, it's it's the classic base in a play because you can tell it's again it's one setting. It's just it's an actor showcase. And either you're going to kind of enjoy that ride and say I'm just going to enjoy these performances and what they're trying to say and enjoy that experience, or you look at it as you did and say I was expecting more. And I, to be honest. The general reaction has been people were expecting more. The film has made maybe $10 million for A24. It's a small movie. They're not looking for a big budget, but they're expecting more. I mean, it got a Producers Guild nomination, Best Picture, but it missed out on Best Picture, Aronofsky, Director nomination. It's not up for screenplay. So it's pretty much Frazier, Hell or High Water. And this is interesting, the Best Actor race. You mentioned Farrell earlier. He's never won before, never been nominated before. He's a great actor. We all know that. Frazier, comeback performance. How cool is it? Hey, George of the Jungle is going to win an Oscar. But he's also done some other stuff, Gods and Monsters, School Ties. Or it could be Austin Butler for Elvis. And he won the Golden Globe. And you know the Oscars, they love their performances on biopics. He proved he could sing. He's dancing, et cetera. Young, upstart. So it's it's a really fascinating race. Three-horse race right now for Best Actor. But imagine if Frazier wins for a film that wasn't beloved, but he's the one vehicle for the whale. He was deserving because he he's really good. Uh, you know, part of it, when you first hear about it, when you first read about it and you're like, okay. And then you see some stills from it. And then I remember constantly being like, is it available at home yet? And it kept delaying. And then I go, well, enough is enough. Like I'm going to go see this in the theater. And I felt like, wait, did I get like gimmicked into this? Because the shots from it of him in the fat suit, you're like, whoa, okay. This is, this is incredible. I, I actually think it's fine if he wins it as much as I like Farrell. I'm like, okay, is that Oscar? Is that but then the the Austin Butler part of it, who he's still talking like Elvis, which I think is really interesting. 
I had a Is roommate. It it's been yeah. a year now, Ryan. Like yeah. I, I, but I'm in favor of method acting. You and I love Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> we love Gangs of New York. I totally get the fact that he's on set and goes, Marty, I'm not going to pal around with DiCaprio. I'm going to stay in character. Amsterdam. Like I'm going to do this for the next six months. Like I get that. But once the movie's over, like I think it's like, hey, Leo, nice to meet you. I'm Daniel Day Lewis. Marty, good to see you. Hey, great job. Like I, a year later, he's still using the same voice. That seems a little much. I had a roommate who was from outside of Boston that had no accent. And after Google Hunting blew up, he came back full fledged. So we were like, wait, <laughs> what, what happened? He was like, dude, when I come home, you know, like I just pick it up a bit. And we're like, you sound like an entirely different person. We've already known you for two years. This is weird. And so I did think it was funny after the Golden Globes that people just kept releasing these videos of Austin Butler still sounding like Elvis. And to his credit, he was like, am I like, he was kind of funny about it. Like he, well, didn't, he said he, he thinks he's damaged his vocal cords now. I'm like, well, just stop talking like that. You'll be fine. Yeah, he didn't. He was, you know, I think somebody else would get really defensive and they'd have this PR team release all of this stuff. And he was kind of like, am I? Ooh, that's weird. <laughs> My bad. Uh, A24, though, that's a good point. It's a good parallel to HBO because if it's A24, I'm giving it a shot. That's yeah. basically where I am uh, with them. And I like that they they swing and I think they connect a lot of the times and I don't even care about, you know, and again, this is personal taste misses as far as everything is concerned. Flying the other day, uh, I only made it an hour in, so I still have some work to do to watch the rest of it. Uh, the plane landed and the movie cut off right around the dildo fight scene, which I thought was a good time to take a break. <laughs> if it wins best, like, think about that. The best picture frontrunner does feature a dildo fight scene. Like how I know the Academy's gotten younger. It's more diverse. It's more audacious. But you know, there's gonna be some crusty old cinematographer going. Yeah, I just can't get past the flying dildos. I'm gonna have to vote for the Fablemans. I like Spielberg a lot. Thought it was a good film. Bam, that's my best picture. I haven't seen Fablemans yet. Go. Well, on everything, ever all at once. I mean, that is truly a film which is unique. And I, again. That's why I credit A24. They're going to take chances and try something different. I can't imagine that elevator pitch. If my buddy Ryan Rosillo was pitching that to a film, saying, okay, um, Asian family, laundromat, time-shifting. She plays 25 different characters. It's, it's going to be awesome. Like It's kind of like a House of Flying Daggers, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. we got hot dog fingers. Like, well, I, I don't think this is going to work. But somehow, they pull it all together. <laughs> and I don't think the entire film works. I do think it's a little too long. I do think at times it's too ridiculous. But for A for chutzpah and originality and trying something different. And Michelle Yeoh's terrific. Kihue Kwan is going to win the Best Supporting Actor. He's excellent in the film. And it's it's vibrant. It certainly is. And it's the, the beginning. Yeah. The beginning of that movie is is really well done, where it's this it's this scene that's kind of just going. You know, it doesn't take a breath. You just you're just in it. As soon as the movie starts, you're just in it. And I I like that. It's almost like you have to kind of catch up to how fast it's going in the beginning. So I'm trying to be fair here because, I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm not going to sit here and talk about a movie that I haven't seen the second half of because yeah. the plane landed. Uh, so I will watch the second half. But I, well, I what do you think of it so far? You don't sound like you're, you're kind of like, eh. It's just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it stopped at the wrong place for me. So I need mm. I need to watch the rest. So I'm, we'll, Fair enough. We'll, Flying we'll Dildo is probably yeah. not the best scene. Because that, that fight scene, I had like a kid sitting next to me on the flight too. So I was like, all right, I probably should turn this off, I think. Because, you know, like she was looking at me. She was like eight. She oh. was watching The Office. And I was like going, hey, cool. And then right. this this scene happened. I was like, okay, we're we're touching down here anyway in Utah. So probably a good time. 
I like that they give you that option, like at the start of the film. It's like, you know, there, there's some objectionable contact. Would you like to continue? You're like, yeah, fine. Wolf of Wall Street. It's okay. Like, who's going to be? Who's going to object to this stuff? And they edit it sometimes for the movie for the release on airplanes, but clearly, as you saw, not nearly enough in this case for an eight-year-old girl. No, I don't think she saw any of it. And now I feel weird even talking about it. And I would admit you wouldn't even really know what was going on unless you were watching watching the movie because it was such a weird like it's it's kind of this kung fu scene and there's just a couple weapons that aren't traditional weapons. Yeah, so, I don't think she's able to decipher that they're sex toys. She was not that sure. Yeah, I'm hoping so because now this is feeling weird even talking about it. Uh, <laughs> Life advice. <laughs> this is what we went to. <laughs> How are you doing post? I'd feel bad. Uh, I, I, this is a better word for that. I'd feel worse for Eagles fans if you didn't have one in your back pocket from a few oh. years ago. You doing all right? Yeah, that does help though. You're right. There is some salvation saying, well, at least we have one. And I've been a fan since 90, so looking at 33 years. And I always go back, it's funny, you know, if I say a team to you, I always think, do you think offense or defense? If I say 49ers, you think of offense, Montana, Young, Rice. If I say Bears, you think of defense and Monsters of the Midway. When it comes to the Eagles, even though one might think, okay, it's always going to be offense because of Cunningham and obviously McNabb and Michael Vick, et cetera, I always think of defense because I love those Buddy Ryan teams, those early 1990 teams. And the biggest thing that is still pissing me off is if you look at the points per play the Eagles allowed was 0.71. A good NFL defense, as you know, should be 0.3 to 0.4. So do I think the Bradbury call was ticky-tack? Yeah, but we didn't lose because of penalty. We lost because we couldn't get a stop. Like that second half defense was deplorable. And Jonathan Gannon didn't change anything. And we couldn't get any pressure. You can't be a team, Ryan, that has the third most sacks in a single season and get zero sacks in the Super Bowl. If you don't put pressure on Mahomes, he's going to slice you and dice him. That's what he did. And I knew our special teams. Credit to Sean Payton who said, hey, one weakness for the Eagles. Their special teams kind of lousy. That punt coverage, horrible. That play set up at the five. Virtually, that was a touchdown. So I'm with you, though. It does help having the one. Like, if, I remember in 05 losing to the Patriots. And getting that one is a little bit of salvation. But this is probably the best Eagles team I've ever seen. And you're never going to get a better schedule than this. Right? We played nobody in the regular season. Giants were a real playoff team. Niners was a fourth-string quarterback. Like it, it's, it's right there for the taking. Ten-point halftime lead. You got to close, and they didn't do it. Yeah, there's a few things now, you know, further removed from it. So I don't want to do a full Super Bowl recap this far out. But like yeah. Sirianni, I don't know who's even asking about him punting in fourth down on his own side of the field. There, like he had to address that. I can't fathom anybody in that spot down a score is going. All right, I don't know. I, I that I didn't even think about it. Like reading him talking about it, I'm going, wait, which play? I had to go back and, and go, okay, so that's ridiculous. I did think, especially if you look at the Eagles now against the quarterbacks that were good, they gave up a lot of points. Like if you look at the handful of games against the good quarterbacks, uh, and it would have been four touchdowns if they wanted the fourth touchdown. So it would have been even worse if the Chiefs weren't trying to drain clock and kick the game-winning field goal. So that was always something that was that was in there. But they were still right in it. We're still yeah. talking about scoring enough points to win a football game. The Hurts part of it, I think, should make you feel good. And as much as everybody's on Gannon for adjustments and execution, like I'm, I say it all the time, okay, feel free. Let me know what all the adjustments that you would have made because you're talking <laughs> about Patrick Mahomes. So right. if were you going to catch him maybe on one series? I don't know. But we're talking about somebody who physically is as good as we've ever seen at the position. Um, he's probably not going to have Brady. I doubt he's ever going to have Brady's resume. But as far as just his ability to play, like you were – you were in a one-score game with that guy with a chance to still win it. So, you know, losing to him, <laughs> losing to him, it, there's going to be a lot of fan bases that go, oh, you know, it, it shouldn't be framed as I can't believe we lost that game. It's, oh, it's yes. disappointing that we lost a game to what is already, you know, Mahomes' early resume 
like, we were laughing about it the other day. I don't forget which guest it was, but just that he's hosted five AFC title games and we don't even realize it. We're just like, wait, what? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I know, I know you guys are bummed out and it's, it's a great fan base despite all the criticism of it. Uh, but you know, whatever. Yeah. And I'm with you. Sometimes you do have to tip your cap. Like it is Mahomes. It wasn't like some flash in the pan. Like, no, this guy's outstanding. And Andy Reid's a great coach. And is a great offensive coordinator. Like early on, I was so mad and yelling at the TV. I'm like, how is Kelsey open? Like, that's the one guy that can't be open. And then I'm like, well, obviously if they don't stop Kelsey, sometimes it's what the Chiefs are doing, right? They're disguising certain things. So they're a smart team and, and they're a good team for a reason. But like I said, Hertz was great. I mean, that part I feel like he's going to get a huge raise. Fine. It's going to work out the cap a little bit. Fletcher Cox, Brandon Bram, probably move on. I hope Kelsey doesn't retire. But like your nucleus is there, like the A.J. Browns, the Devontae Smiths, the Dallas Goddard. So we'll be back in the mix. Okay. Uh, I know we love promoting stuff for you. So tell us about Cinephile. And uh, I wanted to get to that Michael Walker new contract with the Padres. I love that there's a club option. It's like a choose your own adventure for a contract. I love the club option. And then if that's declined, he has the player option. I love this stuff. Uh, But we probably don't have time for that. So what else do you have? Yeah, so Cinephile, obviously your place for all your Oscar predictions leading up to uh, the Oscars March 12th. NHL Network, bad year for the Flyers, but still still trudging out there. John Torrell at top Is Dreisaitl top five? He's unbelievable. I mean, McDavid it might score 150 points. He's going to be the sixth person ever to do that. And Dreisaitl is his teammate, who's a top five player in hockey as well. It's ridiculous. They might get Eric Carlson from the Sharks, who's having a sensational season. So feeling pretty good about the Oilers right now in the Western Conference. I like that you throw in a dry subtle rather than a McDavid question. And of course, MLB Network. I told Saruti, I said, I can't wait to see Ryan. I really want to talk WBC because probably not going to happen. But March 8th, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I love Freddie Freeman, former MVP playing for Canada. Good to see that. Yeah. Go Canada. Go Adam Inverk. Uh, always good to catch up. Thanks, man. Last quick one. I know you're saying goodbye to me. 30 seconds or less. My buddy Jason Robbins wants 30 seconds on Jalen McDaniels. He's a huge Sixers fan. He goes, he's an athletic special long wing that could play D. I need Ryan's analysis. Yeah, he's... There's this group of like younger big wing 3 and D. I mean, the, the oddity is he gets compared to Jaden McDaniels from Minnesota, who's a terrific, terrific defensive player. And you're always like waiting for the shooting. And then there's the shooting of, is it catch and shoot where he's limited as a shooter where the shooting numbers look good but he's never really going to be able to do anything on his own i thought it was a total steal for the sixers to pick him up charlotte i guess didn't want to pay him uh you know what what's he really going to be like ceiling wise i don't think he'd have the opportunity especially with so many shot takers in front of him on philadelphia's team but i think it may solve the the carousel of wing options that Rivers has been kind of like sifting through. And some of that's because of injury and whatever. And like people want to look at Thibel hitting shots for Portland the other night. Like, all right, but you know, like Thibel for the most part's not been able to shoot for most of his career. So I think Jaden is a really nice next option in the rotation for in comparison to all the different things that Doc was doing. So like, I, you know, I wouldn't get carried away about like, oh, yeah, they got the next superstar here because Charlotte had him that whole time. And even if you think Charlotte's not a great front office or I maybe better said ownership, maybe not on a birthday, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he was kind of like if he scored zero points, you wouldn't be shocked. And if you looked at the box score and had, he had 18, you'd go, oh, wow, that's so, yeah, big athletic. You hope the shooting is consistent enough. You'd like to see more shooting a bit more on his own. The defensive wing option. Um, it's a nice pickup for Philadelphia. I loved it. I love it. Excellent. He said he listened to four hours of you and Simmons. You did not discuss McDaniel. So we knocked it out. Thanks, man. 
The midway point of the NBA season is here, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to point scores and threes drained. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, Raheem Palmer is going to join us, who's part of the East Coast Bias betting pod, and we're going to talk NBA futures and the title odds that are out there. Right now, Boston's plus 90. That's the that's the, I guess, lowest odds. Um, the Clippers are plus 1,200. I know I haven't been super Clippers guy, but Raheem's going to talk to us about why he thinks that's great value, uh, especially what we've seen from Kawhi the last couple of weeks. So there you go. We'll get into more depth with that with Raheem. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. So don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com forward slash Ryan. That's FanDuel.com forward slash Ryan to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com forward slash sportsbook. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Raheem Palmer works for us here at the Ringer East Coast Bias with John and House. Uh, that episode is out on Friday. I know he just taped. Uh, we've not spoken before, so good to meet you, man. What's up? Good to meet you, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's an honor. You know, I mean, I've been watching you on TV forever. So um, it's good to, to finally meet and speak to you. <laughs> well, OK, don't get to, I don't want to let you down now. I, know I feel like I have to come through here. OK, you are. <laughs> uh, we need some help here. Maybe I do. Sarudi, at one point in the season during our, our FanDuel Picks contest, which he won, he said he thinks he solved gambling, which would have been amazing news had somebody solved it. Uh, I did laugh. He ended up winning the contest. And then once we started getting through it, like anybody, this is really, really hard. It's a lot of fun. It's mm-hmm. a lot of fun, but it's really, really hard. So give us your, you know, as, as an expert in this field, give us kind of your methodology, your whole philosophical approach to playing this so first things first i'm mad y'all had a contest and y'all didn't invite me (laughs) i'm offended no okay no next Um, time next time nah so i mean my biggest philosophy when it comes to betting is that you have to be able to price a game you have to be able to come up with your own number somehow some way um and you also have to be able to find something in which the market isn't necessarily pricing in so for me i i have my own math model um i taught myself how to code at one point, I was using Excel. Um, I taught myself how to code in a, a statistical program called R. Um, 
So I basically have my model and that's a baseline for me. Like there's some people out there who have models and it's their whole thing. For me, it's a baseline. So when I say it's a baseline, it's it's just to let me know where the number should be. But then I'm also handicapping the games. So here in this setup here, I have, I have four TVs here and I'm watching every single game and I'm making an adjustment from my model based on what I see. So if you take like a game like the Eagles versus the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, my model actually liked the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, so when you saw, you know, they actually, the number came down. I think they opened Chiefs as the favorite. The Eagles became the favorite at some point. But for me, when I look on the field, I see Patrick Mahomes. And I don't think you can actually quantify that through numbers. So I thought the edge that Mahomes had um, was just so much greater than my numbers. So I threw the numbers out and I went with the Chiefs. So it's a little mix between what the math says and what my eyes see. So it wasn't just the point and a half that you were getting, because I know you live bet at a plus 400 as well. So is that, yeah. you know, the time of possession thing was a big part of the first half, but also them giving away the touchdown to the defense takes away some of that time of possession, which I still think could have been brought up a little bit more to explain. But, you know, you're holding Mahomes 89 yards in the first half. So are you looking at plus 400 as just eyes or maybe I think the answer is probably a combination of your eyes and the value? I mean, for me, like, and that's that's the thing. Sometimes, like, when I'm live betting, I'm going into a game knowing the side that I want to bet live already. So I like the Chiefs pregame. Instead of taking the Chiefs pregame, I said, you know what? I'm not going to take the Chiefs pregame because they're going to go down. The Eagles, when you look historically this this season, they've scored touchdowns on 64% of their first drives. So you know if they get the ball first, they're likely going to score a touchdown, and then you have an opportunity to get a better price live. But I'm not going to lie to you. I went downstairs to order some, to, to warm up some food. I had some chicken wings. And by the time the Eagles had scored, the Chiefs had also scored. So I was going to take the Chiefs at like plus 150 after that first touchdown. And I didn't get an opportunity. So I'm waiting for another opportunity. And I think the next drive, I think the Chiefs drove down and they missed the field goal. Um, the Eagles scored after that. I was like, let me wait a little bit, see if I can get a better number. And then, Right when I think the Eagles were about to score again, Jalen Hurts actually fumbled. <laughs> and I was like, pissed. I'm, I was actually really mad because I was hoping the Chiefs went down 14 points because it would give me an opportunity. And I know the thing about the Eagles this year is that they struggled in the second half. And I knew that the Chiefs were getting the ball first at the um, after halftime. So they'd score before the half and then, you know, double up. So... Um, fortunately it worked out for me, but I have a plan going in a lot of times when I'm live betting. Um, a lot of times I'm looking at, you know, in, in the NBA, how does, um, what's the pace of this game or a team shooting over and above expectation, you know, situations like that. Okay. So the NBA, as we go into the second half here, are you looking at just title odds right now? I have them all in front of me so we can go over those. Yeah. Uh, the MVP stuff, I mean, the Jokic at minus 240 and then Embiid, the second best option at plus 600, almost feels like, you know, is there anything there? With Luka plus 2100, if you said, hey, Dallas has got the easiest schedule going, you know, does that mean that he could push some run and get it high enough of a seed? And, you know, the numbers are going to be there. So I know a lot of times it's not just about, do I want to be right? It's just, is there enough value in there? The MVP stuff feels like it's a little tough there considering what Jokic is doing and the return of the straw polls that ESPN had where it's overwhelming that Jokic is getting most of the first place votes. How are you trying to just, I don't know, 
scheme up what you're doing here in the second half. Well, I weigh the straw poll like very heavily. Um, at one point, actually, I had an MVP model. Um, and I think it doesn't work as well as it used to because I think precedent has been broken in the last couple of years. So when you look at the last couple of years with Jokic winning and he's won as like a six seed both times, when you look at historically throughout entire MVP voting since like 1985, uh, no one's won it with less than a second seed besides Michael Jordan in 1988, Russell Westbrook, the year he had the triple doubles in Jokic. So precedent has been broken lately. So, I mean, I think that leaves room for, for Luka. But I just don't think the Mavericks are going to be good enough. And, like, right now, I weigh that straw poll very heavily. I mean, Jokic is just, I mean, he's putting up unreal numbers. But I think you can't really sleep on Embiid because Embiid put up 47 points against Jokic. And I think some people, I mean, the head-to-head matchups aren't everything. But I think there's going to be some people who aren't going to forget that. And like, I've, I mean, I try to look at individual vo- voters. Like, what do they value? Um, a guy like Jalen Rose or a guy like uh, Mark Jackson, they're going to remember that. Um, but I think, you know, a guy like Zach Lowe is probably going to vote for Jokic. So I try to look at all the voters and anybody who has a vote. And I try to think, who would they vote for? Um, I think right now, Jokic at plus, and what is it, minus 240? It's not a ton of value, um, but I think he's 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 at minus two forty for a reason. Yeah, it's weird because if they were inverse team wise and he was the same guy, then I think the Embiid odds would be, uh, you know, not as much value, but more favorable to Embiid because you've had Memphis go through their struggles, which is weird that it'd be this long. Uh, and it's still Jod and Jaron Jackson playing, right? Like some of these other mm-hmm. teams, you're like, oh, they're going through their rough stretch. You know, Phoenix goes through their rough stretch. Well, okay, because that's Booker's out, you know? Like, yeah. what else do we need to talk about? Uh, Milwaukee getting all three of their guys back, and we see the win streak, even if Middleton doesn't feel all the way back. Uh, Boston's probably due for something if they finally have guys that start missing games because Boston usually is the team that you can count on having their best players play all the time. So while all of this is happening, Denver's the one seed. They've been the clear one seed now for a while where I think fatigue in voters is a real thing where mm-hmm. it's almost like maybe I'll do something a little bit different. I voted for him the last two times. I think playoff failures can leak into the way somebody would vote for somebody the next time around. I don't know that that necessarily happened to Harden. I mean, Harden has three number twos and a number three outside of the one year that he won it. So it wasn't like voters completely wrote him off. But the fact that Denver's won and Jokic statistically is still off the charts here in comparison to the other candidates, you know, if they were the four or five seed, I wouldn't even touch it with the same mm-hmm. numbers, just knowing how the voting works here. But that the fact that they're going to be the one seed after the six seed last year, it's uh, you're right because statistically or historically, then that was the big Westbrook thing. People were mad about. Well, look at the standings. But at that point, I don't know that enough of us are really understanding what we were seeing with the triple-double. It was just a triple-double. It was like, oh my God, yeah. you know, this guy's got a triple-double. This hasn't happened in forever. And then we start to kind of figure it out a little bit later. All right, well, that's maybe a little bit more about their approach and everything else. But the MVP part of this, the straw poll is so heavily favored Jokic that I don't even know if fatigue. Fatigue is not enough of an overriding factor to get you to probably try to risk it on somebody else with better odds. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, you look at the other day, they played Miami without... Jamal Murray and a couple other starters, and they went in there and just absolutely dominated Miami. And a big part of that is Jokic. So um, I think if you had to take a flyer, obviously it's Embiid and, and Giannis. I mean, Giannis right now is playing out of his mind, but I just think 
I, I'm actually I'm shocked that Giannis is ahead of Embiid. Um, as a Philly guy, I'm kind of offended, honestly. Um, I know Giannis is playing out of his mind, but I mean Embiid has just been so good, and for him to put up 47 on Jokic, um, it just feels like he's going to come out of this never having won won an MVP. Um, probably be the best player to never have won one. <laughs> okay, tell me more about your model. Like, if you're looking at like, what are you applying it to for the stuff that you're trying to figure out what to bet on in the second half? Um, so for me, it's, I mean, it's, it's totals, it's sides, it's, you know, just trying to get a baseline of, of, so the market has their number, but then I also have my number and I'm trying to figure out if my number is right or theirs is right. Um, and you know, for me, I don't blindly bet my model. It's like, so there's times where, you know, my model has things that it's just not being priced into the like to the game. Okay, um, can we go? Can we go, Michael Scott? Explain it to us like we're we're six years old. Uh, okay, give me, can, do you want to look up something? Do you want to look up title odds? Do you want to look up something that you're now trying to figure out the price of in comparison to the public price, so that you can kind of take um, us through those steps? Okay, um, I mean, my model is most mostly game by game for the most part. It's not okay. It's not like I'm I'm not using my model for like futures bets. I'm okay, do you have? Do you have an example of like an NBA game you bet recently? I know we don't have, unfortunately, we're having you on when we have a break in the actual regular season games. Um, and I know I'm putting you on spot here a little bit, so I apologize. But just, no, I cool. want to get, I want to get a better understanding of like something that you were going, okay, this is a game I bet in the last couple of weeks that I thought was, was com- my model gave me a completely different number than the actual price. Okay. Here's one. Um, Indiana played Miami. Um, they were seven point underdogs. My model made it five, five and a half. This was on February 8th. So, I mean, I looked at the fact that Miami's really been struggling. Um, That's what my eyes see. But then my model makes the game five and a half. The market has it seven. I take the plus seven. Okay. All right. I see what you're saying. And that was a winner. And it would have been a winner with your five and a half as well. Uh, Because that was... It's kind of a, ended up being sort of a close game. So you're just, that's enough of a margin for you to be like, okay, this is too much of a gap between the two. I mean, I think some yeah. people that aren't in it every day would be like, wait, that's only a point and a half. But to you and your world, that's a massive variance. Yeah, right? yeah, that, that's that's massive. I mean, you're not going to, at this point in the NBA season, you're not going to find like very huge edges. Everything is priced in. I think when it comes to sports betting, you really want to bet at the start of the season. So, um, you know, a lot of your recreational gamblers are like, I want to wait to see what happens. No, the edges are to be found at the start of the season because the market is unaware of who's good, who's bad, um, what totals are priced too high, which totals are priced too low. Like at the start of the season, I've, I've realized the Clippers can't score. I'm betting the Clippers unders every single night. <laughs> so and that, it's that worked like, out? Yeah, that worked out really well. I mean, they, they really couldn't, like you would watch them and they would go through five, six-minute scoring droughts. And it just was easy unders every single night. And, you know, actually, I think I might have tweeted about it, and I had a professional gambler hit me like, yo, dude, do you know that you're giving away edges? And I didn't explicitly say it. I just said, yo, this Clippers team can't score. And he's like, yo, dude, what what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, (laughs) oh, shit. (laughs) Well, one would argue you're doing your job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, you know, you couldn't go on a podcast. Uh, you can go on East Coast Buys and be like, I'm just going to keep all of this stuff to myself because, you know, because I'm sitting there going like, all right, back to back, second half unders. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like find the team because there would just be a lot of eye test stuff where I'd look at a team going, hey, a couple of these teams, and sometimes it'd be the better teams, so the number would be higher. Like I wonder what the second half totals are on their nights, the back to back. And then I brought up with somebody be like, dude, they've already figured that out. Like, give me a break. <laughs> like, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't crack the code on something other than my eye, the eye test kept telling me that there was a lot of times the better teams that were more comfortable with themselves that don't always play as hard. That's the funny thing is that I felt like a lot of the bad teams played really hard this season, um, which was screwing things up in the beginning of the year. Like the mm-hmm. worst collection of teams. I'm like, man, if you're not ready to play against them, like they're going to beat you or they're going to make it close because they're just trying so much harder. And I do think we have a lot of regular season games in the NBA more so than ever before. I think because everything that's gone on with COVID and all the transitional seasons that we've had, like you'll get some nights where guys just, I know people say this has always been the way in the NBA. I don't know. I've watched a lot of NBA and I think there's certain nights where you go, okay, one of these teams is completely checked out. And I thought there might've been something there on the second half unders for the team that's coming on the back-to-back likely a better basketball team. But again, when you're saying, hey, what's the eye test? And then you look for the number and you're like, they already priced this in, man. They already priced yeah. it in. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think, you know, I mean, some of the edges are, I'm not really a big fade the public guy, but <laughs> I think sometimes the public overprices like certain things. Like you'll look at like injuries. Um, and it's just like, you look at the few of those games where Luca was out and it's, it's Kyrie and a bunch of guys and the Mavericks perform well. So it's just like, I'm looking at stuff like that, where it's just like, all right, this guy's injured, but the market is overpricing it, overpricing this particular player. All right. So that's a good point. Uh, Fade the public is what Scott Van Pelt would, would go with every single year when we do the contest. And he actually ended up doing really well with it. He had another really good year this year. He won't take a favorite, which I think is a, a strict rule. But again, it's, it's not like I'm, you know, mm. De Niro here in Casino. So when you say you don't like that, it felt like it was a bad year because that's what I was doing during the football season. It felt like the public money was right more often than not this season on the worst, on the biggest extremes. And I don't think I should have just picked the one game. I should have gone with three. So when somebody tells you their philosophy has fade the public, why is yours the opposite? I mean, it's, it, for me, it's not the opposite. It's more so I don't think that can be the sole basis for your handicap. For me, it's like, yeah, I want to know what the market is doing. But I'm not going to go out there and blindly fade the public. I'm going to look for spots where, okay, did the market overprice this or push this too far in, in one direction? Okay, so the NBA title odds, I looked at FanDuel's this morning. Boston's plus 290. Uh, this is really you know, interesting because you know Boston has been the best record team throughout. Uh, they're now in a fight with Milwaukee for that one seed. And I think them at plus 290, Milwaukee the second best odds at plus 430. Uh, the part of the statistical stuff last year loved Boston, and part of it was that they were right. But then the other part of it, I thought it was far too extreme, where it was like eighty three percent chance of winning the NBA Finals. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. like, if you think on paper that that's who they are, that they're that dominant, I would say that's an aggressive like overrating of them, despite realizing that they're really good and making it to the NBA Finals. And I wonder if there's still some carryover because I know that a lot of the models love Boston still. So Boston's plus 290, Milwaukee's plus 430, Phoenix now with Durant jumped up to plus 480. I think at one point it was even plus 450 right after the trade. Um, Denver's plus 750, and the Clippers are actually plus 1,200. Uh, give us a take on on what you think about some of the title odds now. Okay, for me, um, 
I think you have to hold on Phoenix. You're you're not buying or selling. Um, like I, if I had to lean towards a, a certain direction, it'd probably be sell, just because I like I need to see what Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker looks like. I mean, obviously, there's probably a non-zero chance that Chris Paul, um, is going to be healthy for this stretch. Yeah. Um, I don't know if if Kevin Durant's going to be healthy. Um, and then they also gave up all of their wings and, and Jay Crowder. I know he wasn't playing this year. Cam Johnson, Macau Bridges. I'm just not that high on this Suns team, especially when you, when you look at them, their profile. And I said this last year and I actually picked the Mavericks in that series against the Suns, the Suns, they're susceptible against teams who can bomb the three because they're perimeter oriented team, but they take a mostly mid range jumpers. And now you add somebody else who's going to take even more mid-range jumpers. So um, I know they they got Terrence Ross and everything like that, but I'm just not that high on the Suns team. I think the Nuggets are the team who, at plus 750, I think they're priced way too low for how good they are offensively. Um, and Jokic has just been absolutely dominant. And outside of, like, outside, like when you look at the fact that Jamar Murray's been banged up and Michael Porter's been banged up. Now he has reinforcements this, this year. He has them them back. And, you know, even that year where they lost in the bubble, Anthony Davis was just hitting everything. He made every mid, mid, mid-range jumper. So um, I like the Nuggets at plus 750. I think um, that's priced way too high. Another one that I gave out at the start of the year was the Clippers. I was really, really high on the Clippers. And they kind of disappointed me for most of the year. But I think they're poised to make a run right now. Um, I like some of the pieces that they added. I like that they added Bones Highland. I like that they added Eric Gordon. Those guys, I mean, they should just help them, you know, fix a lot of their scoring woes. And I mean, obviously, the biggest issues with that roster is the fact that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George haven't been healthy. But I think, I mean, we saw over the last couple of weeks, they're starting to get rolling. So those are the two I like. Yeah, look, Kawhi didn't make a shot until late in last night's win against Phoenix, uh, but they were the better basketball team last night. Um, and then Kawhi, once he needed to turn it on down the stretch, was great. George looks really good. Mm. The closing group, it'll be interesting to see what they do. They stayed big. They stayed big with the Plumlee sub for Zubats, and they closed with Eric Gordon. So I would suggest that there's probably a bunch of people that work for the Denver Nuggets that are ripping their hair out hearing about misunderstood Bones Highland. Uh <laughs> If you're getting second rounders for him, <laughs> the word is probably out uh, that he wasn't the easiest employee. So uh, I do think he's super talented, and I like I like that they're they've upgraded their options. I'm just really interesting to see how that rotation kind of comes together because Terrence Mann is starting now, and yeah. Terrence Mann's had some really really nice stretches. But you're right at plus twelve hundred. Have you seen enough? I, I think. I think you've probably seen enough from Kawhi just the last couple of weeks. If you really dig into some of the stuff that he's been doing statistically, mm-hmm. uh, it's probably enough there because of the value. All right. Um, Lakers. Mm-hmm. Oh, one, one oh, thing I, before more? we go to, before yeah, we go to the Lakers, but one thing I will say, and I want to say this because I'm on your podcast. I hate the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, like that's the team that everybody seems to love that I don't like. Um, and in the playoffs, I'm going to be fading. Them. Um, um, what, wait, like, why look, do you say it? Why do you say it to me as if like I do you think I hate them? No, I have to say it to you because um we're talking title odds and this is like a perfect opportunity to let everybody know how I feel about this team. Okay. I mean, this is a team which is like 25th in half court offense. They can't score in a half court. I mean, this is a te- this is a regular season team and they win mostly by, you know, playing defense, getting out in transition. When they're at home, they kind of overwhelm the crowd and then 
you know, they get a ton of offensive rebounds. So if you're based on, if you're winning based on offensive rebounds and transition, when the, when the game slows up in the playoffs, they're going to struggle. So um, they're, they're the two seed in the West, but the most fraudulent two seed in the West. So I want to let everybody know that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Actually, when I look at the odds there too, where are they right now? Uh, because I thought I wrote down, did I write down select teams or did I write that down in order? I forget. Um, uh, they're right behind the Dallas Mavericks at 17-1. Yeah, okay, all right. So I did write this down as the top five. So, man, uh, not only do you hate them, Vegas hates them as well. Okay, what do you have on the Lakers? Because they are now, in a very short amount of time, have turned into the, quote, team no one wants to play in the playoffs. Uh, look, if I'm getting Anthony Davis, MVP Anthony Davis, from the beginning of the season, I'll, I'll allow it. I'll allow that. Uh, he hasn't looked like that, by the way. Um, I think in some weird games where where other people were out, he looked better. If you're telling me I'm getting healthy Anthony Davis, fine. But based on not even a week of games after the trade deadline and still being unsure about Davis, I think that's a bit of a stretch to say that the teams at the top of the West aren't going to want to play them. I think I'd be more worried about Steph back with Golden State being at the bottom half of the West seating than I would be the Lakers. Um. I Uh-oh. tend to agree just because that starting lineup is it's still one of the best in the league. But I mean, we don't know if Steph is going to come back. Um, I mean, they they put no timetable on it. Now, when I look at this this Lakers team, I get a real 2018. We got a squad squad vibes. Um, now, obviously, LeBron James is a little bit older and Anthony Davis isn't, you know, what he was. But I think there's some value on them at, at plus um, 205 to make the Western Conference playoffs. I mean, they're going to be a, a playing team. I, I think, I mean, right now they're the 13th seed. I expect the Blazers to, to fall out of things. Um, at this point, I mean, like, the Thunder is going to fall out of it. Um, the Jazz are going to fall out of it. So, um, I, I, I imagine the Lakers are going to get into that top 10, get into the play-in tournament, and they should be able to beat somebody. I just, I think when, when you add when you get rid of Westbrook, who's probably the most detrimental NBA player that we've seen in recent memory, <laughs> and then you add multiple competent NBA players, they actually have spacing now. You got Malik Beasley, you got D'Angelo Russell, a mature D'Angelo Russell who's not snitching on people. Um, <laughs> like I just like all the pieces that they added, and I just think they're going to make a run over the second half of this season and make the playoffs. Uh, hey, I appreciate you doing this for us, Raheem Palmer. You can follow him at I am. Rostradamus, which is, you know, you call yourself that, you got to back it up. And uh, he does every Friday on the East Coast Bias pod, man. So <laughs> that's actually that's actually a double entendre. I don't know if people realize it. Um, I'm a big Nas fan. Um, he had the the I am Nostradamus in the same um, same year. Um, so somebody very, took Rostradamus. Very funny that you bring up Nas. I've been on a big Nas kick where I'm making myself do deep dives of the stuff that I skipped. Because I think Nas is one of the most interesting rappers of all time and that his ceiling is is like, I wouldn't put much above it. But there's like these weird stretches where you're like, what the fuck was going on in this song? And <laughs> I can't believe you just brought him up because I've spent the entire week as I've been doing my work, I'm just on this Nas kick where I'm forcing myself to re-listen to all this stuff. I'm trying to find to see if there was anything I left behind and there's a couple things that reached me, but there's also, you can just tell the production from like one album to the next is like kind of the course of where the album goes. The thing with Nas is that he's an artist, like a true artist, and he's going to take chances. So I'm pretty sure you heard who killed it 
um, off Hip Hop is Dead, where he's rapping with that 1920s <laughs> voice. It's the worst song I've ever heard, but it's him trying to take a chance. And I think that's the thing with Nas. And then a lot of times, you know, before he went on this run with Hit Boy, um, he wasn't necessarily picking the best production. I think Hit Boy has him right in pocket um, with uh, King's Disease 1 and King's Disease 2 and Magic. Um, he has him right in pocket. Um, with modern production that sounds like him. But at times, it's about the lyrics with Nas. Um, and he takes so many chances that, you know, sometimes you're going to get, I gave you power, and sometimes you're going to get, like, just something that's completely left. And you kind of got to be able to just buy into that when you have an artist like Nas. Yeah, look, I love him. I love him. And uh, mm -hmm. it speaks to my commitment to him that I'm like, hey, did, is there anything maybe I just didn't give enough of a chance? Because uh, I, I, I was back on Method Man on judgment day which after Takal, you were like come on yeah but the beginning of it is actually really good and yet yeah. it was a bit like i was talking with adnan verk about the whale the movie earlier my expectations for the second method man were so high because Takal is like perfect that when it wasn't perfect i was like okay i'm a little I'm, so i'll let you know if i find anything that i thought i was missing uh no doubt. i appreciate it yo reading. before we go I, I i i thought i should mention this um but I think there's value on um, Jalen Brunson, um, most improved player. Um, I know Shai Gilgis, Alexander, and Laurie Marketing, they have been the guys for most of the year um, at plus 135 on FanDuel. But I think both of those guys are in danger of being shut down um, because Oklahoma City, if they don't make the playoffs, then that kind of loses some of his luster. But you look at what the Knicks are doing right now. They have a real shot at making the playoffs, and Jalen Brunson's playing out of his mind. And I think the trade for Josh Hart has kind of unlocked something, unlocked some, something in that Knicks team. Um, they're the sixth seed right now. I think obviously they're going to move up and pass the Nets. Um, I think Jalen Brunson at plus three fifty. There's some value there. Most okay, I like that. I like that nugget on the way out, man. Uh, appreciate mm -hmm. it. We'll do it again. Okay, thanks. No doubt, it's an honor. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. 
So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Life advice. Email is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. All right. We got a... So, Rudy is en route. Uh, Some slight flight situation coming out of Hartford. So, we will... uh, We'll just do what Kyle and I. Old school. Which wasn't that long ago. All right. Here we go. You ready, Kyle? Ready. Six foot, 210, mostly cardio, thick thighs, nice calves, noodle arms. Okay. All right. I got the full picture. All right. Yeah. Wow. Very descriptive. Don't need that in the future, but we appreciate it. Okay. While looking for a place to live during graduate school in Seattle, an older coworker told me she had a friend with an extra room that she rented out for cheap. Since I do not have much money, I took her up on the offer and I moved into a home with a 75-year-old, very Christian Asian lady. Hmm. Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Also descriptive. Right. At first we didn't get along, but then we connect. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this may seem like a strange living situation for a 27-year-old guy, but I could not give up the opportunity to pay $500 a month for a private bedroom and bathroom. This is unheard of in Seattle. I do not plan on living here forever. I would imagine you wouldn't. <laughs> That's a great sign. Oh, yeah, I would, I, would, I would imagine that. I'm like, okay, I'm never leaving. Um, but because of the, re- of the cheap rent, I want to stay here for five months or so. Five months. That's it, huh? Okay. We get along well for the most part. My issue comes from the provided decor inside my room. Right above my bed, <laughs> there's a rather large framed picture of Jesus. No doubt. I am Jewish. <laughs> oh. Okay, but no, no, he said, but I do not care about uh, the praying or any of the other religious activities and the symbology around the house. But if it's a, but it is a bit much to have Jesus looking over me when I sleep and enter the room. My question is, can I take the picture down? <laughs> if I took it down, she'd notice eventually. And I would like to avoid losing the room or having some awkward conversation about what happened in the picture. At the same time, I would like this room to feel more like home and not have to make <laughs> eye contact with Jesus each time I enter the room. Thanks for the advice. I think that's fair. Uh, look, my first instinct is that you're renting a bedroom. It's not like it's an apartment, right? Uh, I would say you can't touch this. You can't, you know, wow. like... Oh, you would take it down? I mean, I don't know. How often is she like in your room? Is it like a close the door and lock it situation when you when you're out and when you're in? I mean, is she like knocking on your door before you go to bed? See if you want like some milk and cookies. Like, is this really is she really going to like be in there seeing what's going on? And like you can, it's not like you're putting holes in the wall. It's not like you're going to put up a, a big fat head uh, bedroom poster or something. You just, you know, you could either put something else on it unless it's like, you know, nailed into the wall and it's going to be unless there's like some tools you need to get it out of there. I think you could just probably take it off. I don't. All right. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of division on this one because someone's, so a lot of people are going to say, Hey, wait, you're, you're spending 500. It's your room. You should be able to do whatever you want in the room. Uh, that's not usually how the renting room thing works from my experience is that, you know, that's why an apartment costs more. It's not just right. yours, but like you get to do whatever you want. And then beyond that, you don't have a landlord as a house. There's tears to this, right? House, do everything you want, fight with the HOA, lease, sort of yours, but we know it isn't. Renting a room, you know, can you start going, hey, I want to move the bed around. I like it over here better. Hey, I'm going to move a piece of furniture in. You're only going to be there five more months. You want to, you told us she really likes Jesus, obviously. So could she be offended? Could you jam it up? You said you want to stay there for five more months. The cheap, like the whole reason you're in this situation in the first place is that it's 
like impossibly affordable for your current situation. You can't suck it up for five more months. Now, um, that's kind of where I lean. I think a lot of people are going to say, hey, whatever, it's a transaction. It's your room. It's 500. You can take it down, do whatever you want. Uh, it's a 75-year-old woman who's super into Jesus. She's not going to be into that. And as he said, she's eventually going to see it at some point. So that that is going to happen. So I think the only thing I could think of is you take it down and whatever the hanger situation was, you ruin the hanger part of it. Like if it's one of those little <laughs> metal clasps that goes to the wire. It's bent. Bre- it's all bent. <laughs> bent Something's it. wrong. <laughs> It's bent, it's broken, so you set it down, you don't say anything, and then when she sees it, eventually, hopefully you ride this out for a couple more months, maybe that rare chance she never sees it, but I think she's going to see it, it's her house. She's 75, she's probably looking in that room when you're not there, because she's thinking of it <laughs> as still her bedroom, because it's her house. You're just a tenant, all right? Like every everything, every piece of ownership you think you have, not even to just this emailer, but to anyone that's thinking out this situation, whatever ownership you think you have once you open that door and walk past that threshold into your rented bedroom, she doesn't care about any of that shit because it's her house and she owns it, okay? So her argument is probably as strong as yours and everybody's going to disagree on this one. So I think the only way, if you have to take this down, because I get it, you know, this dude's looking at you every day. I would, I would, just totally make up a scenario where after you take it down, not like damage, damage, but, you know, break a hanger, uh, which you could then replace for like two bucks. Right. We all know what we're talking about here. These little things, you just tap them in. Um, I don't know if it's fastened a different way. I don't know if we're talking Jim's parents from the office's house with the clown picture. <laughs> right. Right. Everything's where it just in the wall. <laughs> it, it can't be removed. But I think there's a way to get around that awkwardness where you're thinking, hey, yeah, I, I didn't, I forgot to tell you, I didn't want to bother you. I didn't want to add any stress. The hanger, it was, it was off center one day and I looked and the thing was broken and I was going to replace it for you. I just haven't had the time. And you hope that you get busted late enough in the next five months that then you can like go, oh, I'll get to that. But the only problem is she's super intense. Like some of the older women that I've been related to will be like, hey, didn't you say you were going to do that thing? They never fucking forget or stop asking you about her. <laughs> Maybe she will forget. Who knows? You know, I don't want to assume anything here. I think that's your only play where you're blaming an act of God. Not really. It's just a hanger. And I see what you did. Yeah. It's just you have an out. You have a you have a way to explain away the thing you actually did, which was take down a piece of artwork that she clearly likes. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, that aside, I think there is a there's a, a, a clear line between doing whatever you want and like, you know, removing something that could be put back up in a second. But yeah, I, I agree with you. The other thing, if, if it was over your head, you could also if you don't even feel comfortable about breaking, you know, or, or slightly uh, sabotaging this, uh, you know, the, the, the holding part of this frame, you could just be like, you know. I've just got a weird thing about I can't really sleep with anything above my head. I don't know if that's where it is. I thought that's what he said. It was above the bed. You could just be like, I, you know, I'm just I'm just not comfortable sleeping with something. You know, my buddy got something, you know, a mirror fell off when he was sleeping one time and I that never left me. So I just I'm afraid of sleeping thing, with things above my head or something. You could say that. And and, and you can say nothing until it comes up. Yeah. Earthquake, Maybe you could you know, say it was you. West. Yeah. You know, lived lived out in San Berdu for a bit and, you know, a thing fell on me. I just can't get to sleep. I can't get to sleep knowing it's up there. I'm sorry. I, you know, I just, uh, I just want to put it in the closet or something. I think, I think there's a way to to say nothing until it comes up, and then either you sabotage it, like Ryan said, or or you just make up some trauma. And I think that's fine. 
Yeah, I don't think you can be honest. I don't think you say, hey, I don't like this. I'm taking it down. And she's going to say, it's my house. Who knows? Maybe she'll say, hey, I totally understand. That's what 500 bucks is for. That's your room. Do whatever you want. The chances of that happening are very, very little. <laughs> yeah. Right. I agree. Yeah, no, no, I totally. Yeah, put up some put up some rap posters. That's cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, we got another high school basketball coach checking in. Six foot, 175, not a gym guy, but still play competitive pickup. Games like prime Kevin Martin, awkward, but quick jumper, can light it up play solid deal D when I feel like it. All right. Um, I'll try to keep this quick. I'm a teacher in the Northwest, also coach the freshman basketball team. The season's been a fucking disaster. My top two guys practice with JV and only play with me for home games. There is zero continuity in terms of culture, learning sets, and showing respect to myself as a coach after they practice with JV every day. We practice in the tiny back gym while JV and varsity get the main gym. There's miscellaneous PE equipment all over the place. It takes up space in the court and hangs down low from ceiling. It's just an awful setup. The old rings get in the way of deep jumpers. Know the pain. On top of this, nearly everyone else on my team has little to no experience playing serious basketball. Uh, many of these guys have had one year of middle school and most at mostly rec experience. Uh, and most at rec experience. Okay, The vast majority of practices have to be spent on basic skills, so we're limited in our sets, press breaks, and creative defense. We usually sit in a 2-3 and play man against weaker teams. One of my best players, we'll call him Cooper, who was a great all-caps kid off the court, um, but with his super lack of experience playing real basketball, uh, constantly gets tunnel vision when things get tight or feels pressure. He turns into a black hole and just runs into traffic and throws up garbage constantly. We've had dozens of conversations throughout the year on how to better find teammates when pressured and have practiced passing skills and practice daily. He never seems to get it. He constantly runs through whole teams trying to score. Genuinely looks confused when I get on his case. He has similar tendencies defensively where he's often overambitious, going for steals and leaves the rest of his defense to pay for his mistakes. Given how bad my team is, he still leads the team in scoring often and gets a lot of playing time, but his out of control play style has not uh, has not much has changed. Again, he's very talkative and a good kid off the floor. Zero complaints character wise. I'm almost wondering if this is an email about an NBA player and somebody's trying to be clever, but uh, we'll leave that alone. Fast forward to this season, we're one in fifteen heading into our last game. It's freshman basketball, so there's obviously no postseason chance. The season just ends. Um, we have an away game, so my top two guys aren't playing. And we were playing a pathetically bad team. We get up 13 nothing. Hopes are high. The team is pumped. Things plateau. We're up 23 28 to half. Second half's a disaster. They're sitting in the tightest of two, three zones and just letting us chuck from deep. And despite me calling timeouts and literally implementing a three pass rule before shooting, we continue to want to throw up bricks and blow the lead. One minute left in the fourth quarter. We're down by nine. Cooper's already showcased many ill advised takes and numerous turnovers. Uh, after calling a timeout to try and get one of my shooters an open look, he takes the ball, puts his head down, and dribbles into four guys' turnover. I call a timeout and absolutely shred him. Whoa. Quote, for 15 games, I've been asking you to swing the ball, especially on design plays. For 15 games, you choose to do your own thing and disregard what I say. On top of that, with 12 seconds left, he continues to try to foul the other team, even though I've been screaming nothing, get back numerous times. Guy wanted to get his shot up. It's foul. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, I ripped Cooper going to the handshake line as he started to talk back to me. Everyone on the team was defeated. I tried my best to give a good end of the season speech, which was followed by Cooper sitting by his bag with his head down in his hands. I did end up having a chat with him after, but I'm not sure if I crossed the line. Cooper seemed to really enjoy playing this year and is undoubtedly talented, but he never truly uh, internalized anything in terms of me coaching him and just did his own thing most of the year. Did I go too far? Did me calling him out in front of his team like that the last game of a worthless season potentially cause any damage? Any insight would be appreciated. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I didn't mind. I, I think sometimes... 
you know, if you if it's high school basketball, uh, you know, I think the the qualifier here could be it's freshman, your team stinks. None of these guys, if they were any good, they'd be on JV. Honestly, it's so humiliating to be on the freshman basketball team that in a weird way, you have to be made up a certain way to be like, I, I just play freshman ball. And yes, I know some people play freshman ball. You're going to tell me it was great and your kids like it, whatever. I'm just being honest with you. Like if you're in high school and all your buddies are on the basketball teams and you're like, yeah, I still play freshman or like the sophomore that still plays freshman, they're probably not going anywhere basketball wise. They're probably not contributing to varsity at some point unless they grow whatever. Uh, so I, I think one way this you could say, hey, you took it way too seriously. You were too hard on this kid. The team stinks. You already said that. Your best players were on JV anyway, so there was no continuity. And he clearly just doesn't understand the team concept part of basketball. And so you already knew that. So you saying anything to him, like what was was that really about your frustration and about you? And, you know, you did it in the handshake line. You should have done it privately. But that's just really not the way the world works. You know, it just isn't. So I don't have a problem with, you know, high school coaches getting on high school players. Um, you know, I could sit here and say, hey, maybe you should have done it in a private moment. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Um, you know, you shouldn't talk back to your coach when you're a high school player. You shouldn't. I mean, I, I'd say I still have an issue with it sometimes in college, but it also depends. Like if the college basketball coach is a fucking lunatic, sometimes I like it when the player steps up to his coach, just being like, I don't, I don't want to take this shit anymore from you. So I, I kind of understand both sides of that. I, I, I think a lot of people would say like today and the way we're always worried about everybody and everybody's feelings and all this stuff that like is if coaches can't yell at anybody anymore. Um, you probably could have timed it a little bit better, but I don't know. I mean, was the goal to get through to him or was the goal to yell at him? And it feels a little bit more like the goal was to yell at him and you probably knew it wasn't going to be super productive and you were emotional and you were pissed after a game. So it's not the best look ever, but I wouldn't beat yourself up over it. If it really matters that much, you know, take it a step further, reach out to him again, maybe watch some video with him of players that pass the basketball, you know, show him video of some guys being really good teammates. Um, you know, show him some Steph Curry stuff. Show him some Darius Garland stuff. Like, go, hey, do you want to? Do you want to see the difference? And he still might not get it because he's probably thinking, hey, I got 15 points in this game. I'm fucking awesome, and I just take all the <laughs> shots. I'm curious what it's like when you play the home games and the other JV guys are with the freshman team. Like, what happens to him? But yeah, I mean, that'd be really my only advice. If this is bothering you that much, then reach out to him again and tell him you want to apologize and tell him you want to help. And maybe you'll grow from it as well. But uh, I think some people will listen to this and say, you can't do it in front of people. You can't do that. And yeah, I think it was a little bit more motivated about your own frustrations because he wasn't going to learn after the season was over. Um, maybe you made a mistake, but it's, I don't think it's, it's that big of a deal. I really don't. Yeah, I think everything you said was, was right about like what to do now like with this guy. Uh, I, think, I think for the coach, it's really like, do whatever you can to move up one notch and be off the freshman team. Cause I think you're going to have this every year. And it sounds like, you know, you're not always going to have one in 15 seasons, but I do think uh, that sort of comes with the, like that possibility definitely comes with the territory. So, um, you know, this is, uh, there's going to be, I think you're going to have one of these kids every year almost. I mean, I just remember from freshman football, it was like, like you didn't even know the, you didn't even know where you're supposed to be. It's like, you're thinking like play, like plays. How are we supposed to remember plays? Like I, I'm, you know, I'm doing times tables and shit here at freshman year. Like I'm, I, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's, oh, I wasn't doing times tables, I guess. Time we, weren't tables? Far, we, we weren't far removed from times tables is my point. I was like fucking 14 as a freshman. So I'm just saying like, 
uh, I would try to do like, I don't know. It's probably better for you to be the head coach of a lower level than an assistant on like varsity or something. But I just think it's going to be, you'll have a better time once the, the kids have a little bit more collective knowledge and then this shit will work. Cause maybe you just don't have, you might just not have the tools to get this into the brains of people who aren't already thinking this way or aren't already ready to think this way. So, uh, I don't know. I do my best to get up to the next level if I were you see if <laughs> maybe there's no, an assistant. No, there's a good point. Cause I, I think there's another way you could just say, Hey, this team stunk. You knew they stunk and you asked, but I don't know. I didn't watch the team. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know what the town's like. I don't know what this guy's personality is like. Like, are you super intense? Are you, like, if you know basketball that well, it appears you know it pretty well. Did you, should you have just gone, hey, these guys stink and I'm not going to be hard on them ever the entire time? Well, the, I, then what's the point of coaching, you know? Right. Like, okay, they stink, so I'm never going to care about anything. I'm never going to try to correct any of their mistakes. I'm never going to get on this guy. I mean, look, that, that, that kid, he's young. He's making mistakes. Sounds like he's pretty insufferable to coach. So, uh, I don't, I don't think it's always fair to go well if the team stinks why do you care why are you going to get on these guys i mean there's something to be said of like if your team's just awful and you're like if you're yelling at them every single game i'd go <laughs> what's what's but if you're the way this email structured okay if this was like the only blow up if you're being honest like if this is the only blow up then you know you don't want to just go into this going hey we're awful so i'm i'm never going to try to do anything with them so let's look it's it's really hard it's really hard they're not your kids but you want to be this kind of adult especially at that age too like it's i think in high school you understand the older people that have committed this time you know it's a lot of time it's a lot of commitment i've always thought about it i don't know if i'd be good at it or not like it's going hey maybe i just do something different i don't know that i would have the time to do it but then you think like, what would you be like personality wise? And I think that middle school kind of freshman year, that, that 12 to 13, 14 age is an age where the kids are still so young that they're just oblivious to the idea that you're making any kind of commitment. You're just an right. old person, <laughs> yes. you know? So I think the high school kids start to get it a little bit more. And you hear these amazing stories about how much players think back to their time of that high school coach and that connection and that's why the coaches that do love this keep doing it all the time because there's just nothing like that you know it's going to be an incredible feeling then seeing the guys grow older and you know become good dudes or whatever uh and those lessons that you learn through sports that you know the people that don't play sports i i, I get it but at the same time like if you don't play sports and you just dump on it like you never get forced to be in situations life lesson wise like you get some of those life lessons a lot later because you were never put in a situation. So look, I, I think coaches deserve a ton of credit for, for even making that kind of sacrifice. I think the problem is it's this age group. The kids are just, it, it's not even their fault. They're still so young that they don't even get, they're like, what's this guy's fucking deal? You gotta be like more camp counselor than fucking coach. Sometimes, right. Sometimes I think. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, that's Life Advice. Enjoy the weekend, All-Star Weekend. We will be back with an episode, both episodes next week. Bye.